0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. It was only a few weeks ago that we had in the reading of the Proverbs, and the multitude of people is the king's honor. Uh, great kings have their great courts. They will be kings of great nations and many people, and they will be surrounded in their courts by multitudes of people, near attendants, serving them, and ministering to them in different ways, as well as um, Uh, They're loyal subjects coming with supplications and gifts and so forth. We ought not to be surprised that as the spiritual character of the court of the Most High is open for us in vision, we see that the Most High is the king of a great court and has a large and glorious retinue. Indeed, if it's to a king's honor to have a multitude of peoples, how much more so for the King of kings and Lord of lords to be surrounded by a great people. We find ourselves here uh, in John's revelation turning our attention to John's visions of the future, the things that must be hereafter, and the spiritual reality of these things. In chapters 4 and 5, we have the apocalyptic scene set for us, upon which stage all of the uh, visions of future things will be played out. And the first thing that John sees is a vision of Jehovah on his throne as the King and Lord of all. On the throne, he is seen to be almighty and powerful, as well as majestic and glorious. And uh, this morning we've considered something of his glory as it's held forth in these precious gems, the jasper and the sardine stone and the emerald. There is something certain, uh, certainly awful in the vision, something frightful. And yet, the throne of God is surrounded by this rainbow that is likened unto an emerald, a memorial of God's covenant mercies. To his people. We turn our attention now to the fourth verse, where the court surrounding the Most High is described. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting. John sees the divine throne. And then round about that, he sees 24 thrones. And quite literally, it it is thrones. The same word used for the divine throne is used here for the seats that surround the throne. We're not told John specifically how these uh, seats are stationed, but perhaps they were in something of a semi-circle after the manner of uh, a consistory or, or council and where they could all be viewed by uh, anyone who entered into the court. Be that as it may, we are uh, told that there are 24 elders sitting upon these thrones. Right away, uh, we are, of course, quite interested in the identity of these 24 elders. And first, we, we begin with the general, and we start to work our way to the more specific In divinely organized society under the old administration, whether we were talking about civil society or ecclesiastical society, the elders were always the representatives of the people, representatives in government or representatives in the church. And interestingly enough, when the Levitical order was reorganized by David under the inspiration of the Spirit. And a reorganization was a thing most necessary. The Levites were no longer to continue carrying a movable tent through a desert. Instead, they were now going to be uh, attendants and servants in a temple, a stationary temple. Well, David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is... um, is given instruction on their reorganization. In First Chronicles, we won't look at all of this, although it's tempting, we won't look at all of this, but in First Chronicles chapters 24 through 27, we find that the, uh, the priests and the Levites are set in 24 courses. They do not all serve in the temple at any one time. Uh, there were so many of them that such a thing was not necessary. They came up by turns, or by courses, one at a time. And so there were 24 of these courses that would come up, one after the other. And in those chapters you find that the priests and the Levites, the musicians and the porters, and even the royal ministers are uh, divided up into 24 courses so that they might serve by turns. And each one of these courses had a chief man, Or a representative head. Uh, Turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 24. Just to get get an example of this in the case of the priests. 1 Chronicles 24 beginning in verse 4. Verse four, and there were more chief men found of the sons of Eleazar than of the sons of Ithamar, and thus were they divided. Among the sons of Eleazar there were sixteen chief men of the house of their fathers, and eight men among the sons of Ithamar according to the house of their fathers. Thus were they divided by lot, one sort with another. For the governors of the sanctuary and governors of the house of God were of the sons of Eliezer and of the sons of Ithamar. So here we've got uh, twenty-four representative heads or chief men of the twenty-four courses. Uh, we'll we'll see in ju- in just a few moments um, the significance that these that these are. The 24 that are in view, there can be very little doubt. There might be other things that come into view here. We might ask more specifically, well, if uh, the people of God here are being considered in 24 courses, who might uh, our representative heads be when you consider the sum total of God's people in all ages or something like that? It could be the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles, representative heads of the church under the old and new uh, administration. We do see something that might uh, might give some uh, strength to this idea in Revelation chapter 21. And turn there with me briefly. This is the vision of the uh, New Jerusalem, and there's no mistaking it that this New Jerusalem is uh, a symbolic representation of the of the Church. And we find that the twelve tribes, the twelve patriarchs, and the twelve apostles are very much in, in view here. Revelation 21, beginning at verse 10. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So we've got twenty-four names, the twelve patriarchs, the heads of the tribes, and the twelve apostles. Uh, now, whether or not we've uh, rightly identified the twenty-four specifically as the patriarchs and the apostles, uh, I think that there can be little doubt that we have rightly identified that the image in view here It's the 24 courses with 24 representative heads of old. But they're not serving by course, are they? All 24 heads are there. Whereas normally they would be up one at a time in the temple and its ministrations. That was the normal manner. But turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Under some extraordinary circumstances there were some times when all twenty four courses would be present. This was true at the dedication of the, of the temple, and is observed by the chronicler as something significant and noteworthy. Second Chronicles chapter five beginning at verse eleven And I want you to notice some of the details of this passage as we go and think on Revelation 4 and 5 because there are many things in this text that would relate it to uh, our texts in the Apocalypse. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, so they just placed the ark in there, that's the, the context. Place the Ark and into the uh, Holy of Holies in the temple. For all the priests that were present were sanctified, and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Heman, of Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, being <coughs> arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and hearts, stood at the east end of the altar and with them an hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. I want you to lift out of this two images the white garments and the harps and put that in your pocket. Verse 13. It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. And notice, lift one other image, that there is a service of song performed performed here by all 24 courses of Levitical singers. So here uh, we have the full number of attendants waiting upon the Lord, all 24 in our text in Revelation. So in sum total, we can be pretty confident that here we have the great and full number of royal priests representing all of the people of God waiting upon Jehovah as he sits upon his throne. A couple of other notices are given to us here. They are portrayed as sitting, which indicates their settled condition upon these uh, seats or thrones. This also helps uh, confirm that we've... uh, We've rightly identified that in general this is the people of God being represented here. And there's some total. You remember what was promised to those that overcame at the very end of Revelation chapter 3? To the overcomers it was promised that they would be granted to sit with Christ upon his throne. Even as it had been granted to him to sit with his father upon his throne. It is also said that they are clothed in white raiment. We've just seen this uh, in uh, Second Chronicles chapter 5. But remember, uh, we find white raiment is a very common uh, uh, garment in the scripture. We find it as the garment ascribed to God and to his angels. You might think of Daniel chapter 7. Christ at his transfiguration. It's the garment of kings and conquerors, overcomers, if you will. It's the garment of nobles and of priests and Levites. And there were uh, a small variety of meanings attached to the white garments. It was an indication of holiness, particularly in the case of God, Christ, and the priests and Levites. It's a garment without spot, and a symbol of justification and completed sanctification, garments without spot. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. We are not left to uh, grope after a meaning or invent one. We have this image interpreted for us. And first here, uh, clearly as an image of justification, Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So here, clearly, these white robes are a sign of justification, Uh, clothed in Christ's righteousness, his blood having washed away the spot and stain of every sin. But it also appears to be an image of completed sanctification. Turn forward to Revelation chapter 19. Chapter 19, beginning at verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now, this could very well be a justification, it could also be an image of their uh, completed. Uh, sanctification. But be that as it may, these white garments are a sign of righteousness and holiness. But when attached to kings and conquerors, uh, the white garments are a sign of victory. And for all classes, uh, they are a sign of glory and honor. And so the question com- comes, what is the significance of the white garments upon these 24 elders? And my response would be likely all of this. Sometimes one significance is more in the foreground and the others are in the background, but it seems that there's occasion for all. If we're right in our identification of these 24 elders as really being a representative sample of all of the people of God, we've already been taught, and that on uh, multiple occasions, that the people of God have been made by Jesus Christ priests and kings, or a royal priesthood unto God. And so the white garment would be very fitting for them in all of those significations, whether it be holiness, or victory, the victory of overcomers, or glory and honor. All of these things would be fitting. But again, we're not left to guess here, because we learn that these 24 elders in particular praise the Lord, Because they have been made kings and priests. Turn forward to Revelation chapter 5. Where we see that holiness, victory, and glory are all very much in view. Revelation chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. And remember what we saw as we read. Remember what we saw in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. White garments, and harps, and a song of praise unto our God. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps, and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Holiness, cleansing uh, by blood, uh, kings and priests, reigning upon the earth. You see all of these various facets very much in view. And with respect to these uh, white garments, do you remember also in in Revelation 3-4 that this was promised to those that overcome? It would be granted unto them to walk with Jesus in white. This is another confirmation that this is, these 24 are really a representative sample of all of the people of God. And finally, one uh, final image that shouldn't surprise us if we've rightly identified the 24 as the royal priesthood, all of God's people. And they had on their heads crowns of gold, indicative of their royal priesthood. And remember, they are seated upon thrones, also speaking of their uh, royalty. And you might also remember that back in chapter 3, a crown of life, a crown was promised to those that uh, overcame. Even if they should suffer unto death in this world, they would be granted a crown of life. So, on balance, I think there can be little doubt that we've rightly identified these 24 as a representative sample of all of God's people, a sample of all of his royal priesthood. From this, I want to take just one doctrine, and we'll derive some uses from the doctrine as well, but... um, I took the words of the doctrine immediately from the Proverbs. And the multitude of people is the king's honor. Christ is worthy to be glorified in the salvation and worship of a great many, vast multitudes. If if the honor of great kings in this world is discovered by the multitude of their people and their attendants, how much more so the King of Kings. And he is certainly infinitely more worthy than they, our Lord Jesus Christ. It has been uh, prophesied and promised from of old that Jesus would have indeed a vast retinue of attendants. He's uh, saving worshipers for himself. And not just from one nation, but from all of the peoples of the world. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, I'll simply read this to you. What, it's, what it says of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Given the weightiness, the infinite weightiness of the person of Christ and the value of his work, it's altogether fitting that he save a great many. And you see... uh, his father saying to him, it is a light thing that thou shouldest save only the people of this one nation, Israel. Your person and your work is much more valuable than this. I will see you glorified in the salvation of the Gentiles as well. And extend that salvation to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we can be glad for this because we are the Gentiles at the uttermost parts of the earth. To whom this great salvation has come, we see that the promise made to Jesus Christ is uh, fulfilled. We saw this in Revelation chapter seven, which we already, uh, which we already read. Vast multitudes surrounding the the throne and worshiping. We see this a, a representative sample of them in the twenty-four. But turn back with me to uh, Revelation chapter five. We'll pick up at verse 8. But what we see in the four beasts and the 24 elders is their recognition of the worthiness of Christ to be glorified in the salvation of a great many. Uh, the salvation of representatives out of all of the peoples of the earth. Revelation 5.8 And when he had taken the book The Four Beasts And four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation." and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So the greatness of the work of Christ is worthy of every honor, the salvation of representatives from every kindred and tongue and people and nation, but also he is worthy to have the honor of breaking the seals of the book, which we will come to as well. So the text continues, verse 11 And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth. And such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth for ever and ever. Notice that the four and twenty elders give their Amen to this great song proclaiming the worthiness of Christ to receive every honor and it raises questions do you see his worthiness and can you add your amen to this great song that you see his worthiness to receive every honor and for our purposes this morning his worthiness to be glorified in the salvation and service of vast multitudes This doctrine is ultimately a very practical one. And I wanted to to take away from it just a couple of uses. The first, uh, it will move us to labor for the advancement of his kingdom. The advancement of the king of kings and his kingdom in the earth. We have set before us the end of the matter. The end of the matter is sure. Christ will be glorified in a great multitude of worshipers. This has been decreed by omnipotent power. But the church has been called upon to participate. The uh, church's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the means, the um, divinely ordained means to that divinely ordained end. The vast multitude of worshipers that will be given to Christ for His glory. We uh, go about as a church informing all men of their duty to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sins, their duty to obey Him as the King of kings, and to worship and glorify Him and with uh, God's blessing upon this ministry already vast multitudes have been drawn and vast uh, multitudes more will be drawn and brought to the uh, brought to the Lord and be added to that number of worshippers but we are not just called upon as a church or as a collective body to minister but all of us as individuals are called upon to Participate in this kingdom advancing work. Remember the chief end of every man is to glorify God. To glorify the Savior Christ. And call men to add their hearts and their voices to his anthem of praise. We'd have to say that if we spent a life doing this work. It will be a life well spent. A life spent advancing the honor of the Savior and his interests in the world. And we can have every consolation that it is a forever work. It is not a merely temporal work, the reward of which will be lost as this uh, world passes away in fire. But this is a forever work. A work which we will never regret undertaking. The fruits of it will be evident in eternity and last forever, but the scriptures are uh, uh, are plain that this kingdom advancing work uh, will be undertaken by the people of God uh, at their sacrifice and expense. And they must trust and believe that all of the things that are necessary for this life and the life to come will be added to them as they sacrifice in this kingdom advancing work. We are told in the scripture that we will sacrifice many things for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And some of these things we already know in our own experience. We will be called upon to sacrifice the approval of the world. John is very plain about this. You can have the approval of God, or you can have the approval of the world, but you cannot have both. And the more and more you are conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, the less and less approval you will have from this world. And some of us, in losing the approval of the world, which can sound very abstract, have lost the approval of parents and brothers and sisters, family. Friends, you put it in the concrete and you begin to see the sacrifice of of it. But the Lord told us beforehand that it would be so and that we are to count the cost. We sacrifice our time. We give our time to the Lord in his uh, kingdom advancing work. Time that we could give to our own uh, temporal advancement and prosperity. But instead we give it to the Lord. For the advancement of his kingdom, we give our temporal resources and our money. Uh, this is an easy thing to say in um, in prosperous economic times, but it becomes a great challenge during hard economic times. As I was meditating upon this, and from time to time, especially as we've been reading through the Acts of the Apostles again. In our, uh, in our um, scripture readings, something of a grand vision uh, opens up to me from time to time. I can't say that I've been able to hold it consistently in view, and yet it's there. We find that this early church was spreading in the midst of troubled economic times. There's economic hardship and famine. and What do we find them doing? We find the early church, in the warmth of their first love for Jesus Christ, ready to sacrifice everything, houses and lands and possessions, for the edification and care of their brethren, and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. They're quite literally willing to give everything away, sell it off, and bring the proceeds into the church for the advancement. Of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in the hearts of their brethren and for their care, as well as in the hearts of others. In God's providence, I have uh, I've been working my way through Philip Schaff's uh, Church History, and I've been in the volumes pertaining to the Middle Ages, and I've been reading about those early evangelists to the uh, Germanic nations. Uh, They went in as uh, missionaries, and the difficulty of the work. I read about one in particular, uh, a man who's very little remembered by the name of Ansgar, who was a missionary to Denmark, or what is now Denmark. When I think on Ansgar and his beliefs, I'd have to say that I'm not sure that the man had very much understanding of the gospel or uh, Christian truth. The Roman error is already rising and it's already cast quite a, a darkness over uh, this man's mind. But uh, in some ways it makes him all the more useful as an illustration. Ansgar goes into Denmark where paganism is strong and he builds a mission and he builds churches and he begins to fill those churches. And what happens? The pagans get very angry and they burn his churches And his mission. And they drive him out of the country. He has to flee for his life. So he goes and he moves over one country. And he continues his work. And he comes back. And they burn everything again. And drive him out. And he comes back. And he just doesn't stop. Until the mission was well settled. Ultimately, Ansgar had a victory over the forces of paganism. Frequently in the scripture, uh, uh, believers in the true God of heaven are chided because idolaters show more commitment to their idols than believers in the true and living God show to their true and living God. And this makes Ansgar all a better illustration. Look at this man's commitment to a gospel that he, very, he hardly understood. And yet we've been given a much greater life after the time of Reformation and great, much greater understanding. And it brings us to self-examination. Is this in us? Do we find the same spirit in us that was in the early church uh, during the time of the Acts of the Apostles? Do we find that same sort of... uh, relentless vigor and zeal for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ that we even find in an Ansgar. Do we find this in us? And it raises a second question for consideration. What would happen if it was? We found in ourselves the same spirit that the church possessed during the time of the Acts of the Apostles when they were reaping such large harvests of souls and being so very uh, blessed by the Lord. But they did venture all things, and the Lord took care of them. They suffered many things, but the Lord took care of them, and he greatly blessed their work. And the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ was greatly advanced during that age. Jonathan Edwards in his own assessment said that during the the time of the ministry of the apostles, during the time of their ministry, that he thought probably more souls were converted in that handful of years and in that generation than all of the generations of the world up to that time. And that's quite a remarkable progress and success of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ as they minister. But when we call upon... uh... or rather when we are called upon to the sacrifice of all things for the advancement of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, it can make us feel a bit insecure and a bit uncertain. This call comes to us in the midst of troubled economic times. And uh, almost all of our families have been touched by the trouble But do we believe what the Lord Jesus Christ said when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things? Food and raiment and lodging will simply be added to you, your Father in heaven, already knowing that you have need of these things. Do we believe this and venture our security on that? That as we seek the advancement of the kingdom, our God will take care of us and simply add unto us all of the other things without our having to seek after them, strive after them, worry about them. Let us believe and out of that belief speak and sacrifice and work to the glory of the Savior Christ. And for the fullness of his court. For he is worthy to be glorified in the salvation of a great many. Let us pray together.